Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Dr. Benjamin Williams. As we come to the Word, I want to share a sermon entitled, Sequestered. You know, it all happened over three days, sundown to sundown, as all Jews reckon time, starting when it was just dark enough indoors you had to light a lamp in order to read the Bible. On the first day, Jesus began by celebrating Passover with his disciples. It was a festive meal featuring lamb, if you could afford it greens and bitter herbs, closing with a symbolic sharing of unleavened matzah bread and cups of wine. Traditionally, Passover was, and still is, celebrated like the original Passover in Egypt as the pestilence was sweeping through the land, namely at home, in small sequestered family groups. Jesus would have had only his closest followers with him. It was not an occasion in those days for mass meetings and rowdy crowds. Afterwards, they left the hall to the next shift of Passover celebrants. And since Passover pilgrims were required to spend the night within the confines of Jerusalem, they retired to a small grove on the Mount of Olives, to pray or doze. After a little bit, we aren't really told how long, and after all, the disciples slept through that part, Judas arrives with a temple guard. Jesus is arrested, he's roughed up, subjected to an illegal mock trial, on trumped-up charges. He's ridiculed as a false prophet and roughed up some more. By sunrise, Jesus is dragged before the provincial governor and then accused of something completely different, that he presumes to be a king and rival to Caesar. You see, Romans crucified wannabe kings. The disciples scatter. Peter and perhaps John stay close enough to find out what would happen. But when he's recognized, even Peter runs away. John and the women, you see the women would be immune from prosecution, are the only ones present during the crucifixion. The other disciples hide in ones and twos, waiting for the bad dream to be over. By the end of the first day, Jesus is dead. The executioners check to make sure. The average crucifixion lasted three days until the ribcage collapsed onto the diaphragm and caused suffocation. This one goes much faster, probably a result of the beatings and the flogging he had received. 
it was just as well. The authorities do not want dead bodies displayed during the Sabbath. With the sun dipping low on the horizon, one or two members of the council, rumored to be closet sympathizers, hurriedly wrap the body in a linen winding cloth and tie a narrow strip around the face to hold the mouth closed. The body is passed down through a narrow opening in the ground and laid on a stone table in a nearby rock tomb until more permanent arrangements can be made. As they then leverage the rock into place, oh, an approximately three-foot slab, the Sabbath begins and everyone scurries home to spend the day sequestered with their loved ones. The Gospels tell us almost nothing about that second day. It was a Sabbath day. Luke's Gospel, in chapter 23, the verses 55 through 56, says only this. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed. They saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. They rested. The small clusters of disciples are hunkered down behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. Today we might say they shelter in place. It's unlikely anyone had thought to buy groceries as Jesus hung there dying. So they may have fasted. But then, who would have wanted to eat anyway? Sabbath travel was restricted. No one would be rushing about as secret couriers. The disciples are isolated and alone in their miserable holes. As the sun sets once again, the Sabbath ends and the third day begins. Passover pilgrims begin making preparations to return home at daybreak. <clears throat> and just before it begins to get light, street vendors begin setting up and the women must hurry to buy anything else they'll need for the burial. The body must be washed and anointed, rewrapped with aromatic herbs and appropriate prayers. They want to give Jesus the honor that was withheld him in life. But when they arrive at the grain site, the rock has already been pushed aside. And what follows is pandemonium. I'm reading from Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, the verses 1 through 5 and then verses 9 through 12. <clears throat> but on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, 
they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them, and the women were terrified, bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here, but is risen. Returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and all the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and then he went home amazed at what had happened. There's confusion, panic, bewilderment. What on earth? Women go to the tomb, but no one can quite remember which ones. Mary Magdalene for sure. There was another Mary who was the mother of James and Jesus. Maybe there was Joanna, or was it Salome? And then there were some other women, nobody could think of their names. And then they run to tell the eleven. And we readers assume that the 11 are all in one place, but it doesn't say that. And is that so? The Gospel of John recalls that Mary Magdalene hurried to tell Peter and John, but when she finds them, none of the others are there, at least not yet. So we have to assume the women scattered, each one running to inform some of the disciples holed up in ones or twos or threes in several hideouts around the outskirts of the city. The Gospels all agree that the stone had been moved the body gone and the tomb empty. Details vary. Some thought there had been an earthquake. It was rumored angels had appeared, but it wasn't clear if it had been one or two, if they had been waiting there when the women arrived, or if they appeared after the tomb had been searched. Luke and John agree that Peter, maybe accompanied by John, was the first of the men who went to see the tomb, but he saw no angel and was only puzzled by the whole thing. And then the unthinkable happens. Jesus appears alive and whole. Now again, the details are jumbled. John tells us Mary Magdalene returned to the tomb and seeing someone she assumed to be the gardener, 
found herself face to face with Jesus instead. Luke and Paul agree that sometime later that morning, Jesus appeared to Peter. It was a momentous turning point, but none of the gospel writers thought to write it down and tell us about it. Luke also tells us how late that afternoon, Cleopas and another disciple discover that they've been talking with Jesus on the road for the last four hours and didn't recognize who he was. Now that would be especially embarrassing because something Luke does not tell us, Cleopas was Jesus' uncle. By the time Cleopas and his traveling companion hurry back to Jerusalem, the women have tracked down most of the eleven, that is all except Thomas, and they have regrouped in one place for supper, but they're locked in in order to keep the police out. And there, in a sealed room, the disciples huddled together in wondering faith and uncertainty and fear for what the future might hold, there Jesus appears, and the world is changed forever. There is no one definitive Easter story. The events of Jesus' passion, his last supper, his betrayal, his sham trial, his beating, his trial before Pilate, the public outcry, the crucifixion, the hasty burial, all of that is strikingly consistent across all of the Gospels and the traditions known to the Apostle Paul. But there's no consistent Easter story. Instead, there are stories plural. Some of the incidental details are fuzzy. Did he appear for the first time behind locked doors in Jerusalem, or on a road outside town, or on a hill in Galilee, or on a beach on the Tiberian Sea? There is no organized blow-by-blow -blow resurrection story. Each one knows only what he or she has seen. What he said when he first spoke to her, what, where he was when Jesus appeared to him for the first time, for this one, for that one. And every story is different. And how could it be any other way? When Jesus appears, it's personal and tailored to each individual person, to that person's history and need, tailored to you. No one really knew what was happening, and that is why it rings so true. What skeptics might disparage, the historian must acknowledge as an almost inescapable fact. Frederick Buechner put it this way. Let me quote him. 
It's not really even much of a story when you come down to it, and that is, of course, the power in it. It doesn't have the ring of great drama. It has the ring of truth. If the gospel writers had wanted to tell it in a way to convince the world that Jesus indeed rose from the dead, they would have presumably done it with all the skill and fanfare they could muster. Here, there is no skill, no fanfare. They seem to be telling it simply the way it was. The narrative is as fragmented and shadowy and incomplete as life itself. When it comes to just what happened, there can be no certainty that something unimaginable happened, of that there can be no doubt. So be here. The great pivot point of history comes when Jesus then appears to people, to Mary, to Peter, to Cleopas, to Thomas, later to his brother James, eventually to Paul, and so on. They hear about the empty tomb, but it does not inspire faith, only puzzlement. It's when Jesus is standing there before you that it begins to hit home, and you will spend the rest of your life playing out and thinking through all that means. Here it is Easter, and you may feel cheated this morning. You know, Easter, we're, <coughs> we're accustomed to dressing in our new Easter finery, um, gathering in churches filled with Easter lilies, to hear grand choirs performing stirring anthems, sing some familiar Easter hymns. At Easter, you get to see the church members you don't see any other time of the year. You know, well, I mean, there's children who have moved away, but return at Easter to see the folks. They've got students on break, military on leave. And you get to see those acquaintances who care about you enough to show up once a year, but they don't care enough about Jesus to show up any other time of the year. But you miss the pomp. You miss the festive air, the faces. Easter just isn't the same. Is Easter 2020 ruined? In a day of pestilence, for that's what an epidemic is, humans have always tried to pull back, regroup in little circles of family or friends to wait it out. Social distancing is not a new idea. We find it in, in Rome during its occasional epidemics. We find it in Europe during the great plague years. 
life, culture, commerce, they all grind to a halt and we wait behind closed doors. But that is where Easter happens. This morning, we're celebrating Easter like the first disciples. All of the different stories agree on this point. On the third day, Jesus appears to one alone in a garden, to another in his hiding place, to two on the road. There's an immediacy, an intimacy, a one-on-one, and he speaks very directly to each person's own personal struggle for faith and understanding. It isn't until the fourth day that he appears to any groups, first to a group of ten. I don't know if there's a significance in that. But a group of ten out of of those eleven who were apprehensively locked in at their hiding place. Paul does tell us that Jesus appeared to more than 500 at one time, but that was weeks later. But that wasn't the norm, because the very next appearances were to his brother James alone, and then to other apostles one by one, including Paul. You see, the call of the risen Christ does not require large worship services, nor processional banners and festive robes, nor stirring anthems, or thundering organ, or today pulsing rock rhythms. Not even Easter lilies. He comes to you where you are, sequestered away, waiting and uncertain. A place without distractions. He appears and speaks his shalom, his peace, to you. And he calls you by name. He makes the scriptures understandable. He shows you truths you've been overlooking or truths you've been avoiding. When you see him, when you sense his presence, you know who he is. You know he lives again forevermore. You know you are his. And now you have to live to do His will alone for the rest of your life. And that happens best where there is no drama and no fanfare. Where He Himself is the only drama and your worship the only fanfare He desires. Sheltering in place. It's the place of the Hebrews sequestered away until the angel of pestilence should pass by. It's the place of the disciples waiting and hoping for the unimaginable to happen. And that's the place where Jesus appears and changes lives forever. Pray with me that this year, this Easter, the living Lord will make the truth and the transforming power of his resurrection real in your life and in the lives of those you cherish.
Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, scattered across our communities, locked indoors for uncertainty of what might be awaiting us outdoors, we wait for you. Come to each one, meet us where we are, speak to our need as it is where we are and set us free. Release us from fear, from uncertainty about the future. Give us hope. And above all, Lord, infect us with that Easter excitement, that enthusiasm, because the Lord is really, truly alive. Even death is not the last word ever. Thank you for listening to the KPC Podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.